come out to farm country, meet the farmers, tour the farms, see what we actually do here, make it very transparent, open, honest. They can ask any questions they want. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, it's Mike Pearson here. Glad to be back on the podcast. Always enjoy my time chatting with all the listeners. You'll notice I am flying solo today here on this, oh gosh, what is it? Probably a Thursday? Feels like it's the 27th of September. And I tell you what, Delaney is down in Kansas City. She's at the Kansas City Ag Outlook Forum right now. She'll be bringing us a uh, Bill Northey's little, uh, a little bit of his talk from earlier today. She's hearing from Northey, from Greg Dowd, from all sorts of folks down there. And I'm sure she'll have more to share with us tomorrow. So do be sure to tune back in tomorrow. In the meantime, we are going to have a discussion from our field reporter, Bruce Gorder, who had a great talk with Darcy Malsby, who is an author... She is a person about town. She is involved with all sorts of different aspects in regards to agriculture. Of course, she farms as well with her husband up in northwest Iowa or west central, I suppose. And uh, she's going to talk a little bit about what it is, what it means to tell ag stories. So, uh, so do stay tuned. In the meantime, though, I want to bring us up to speed with some news. The White House apparently is considering putting restrictions on the trading of biofuel credits. Basically, with part of this E15 deal they've been talking about, they want to bring into the fold some restrictions. We don't quite know what they're going to look at, but they're going to be designed to discourage speculation and therefore reduce cost for oil refiners to comply with uh, you know, biofuels policy, to make it cheaper to buy RINs effectively. Uh, three different sources said this to Reuters. They asked not to be named because they're not actually authorized to comment on the discussion, but they did say an announcement would be coming up in the coming weeks. We've also heard in the coming weeks that President Trump could be traveling to probably Iowa, possibly Nebraska, to announce year-round sales of E15. So basically, this announcement would probably follow that very, very closely or maybe be made at the same time. That's kind of part of the compromise between biofuel groups and the oil industry that President Trump is working to negotiate. Speaking of fuel prices, gasoline prices are currently at a seasonal four-year high. This is as we head into the midterm elections. I mentioned earlier, we could see crude oil continue to climb in price. We could see gasoline, diesel, other distillates continue to stay strongly priced. So maybe it's worth jumping in there and getting some contracted here before things really go nuts. Right now, the national price for a gasoline is 267 per gallon as of Wednesday, which is the highest since 2014 for this time of year. And we've got some follow-up here from Hurricane Florence. We've talked quite a bit on the podcast about how it has impacted North Carolina. We haven't talked as much about South Carolina, but of course they also received the deluge of rain they had pretty severe flooding and in some cases the the water is still rising so this estimate which is an estimate of the damage to agriculture in south carolina is probably going to continue to climb right now they are saying the southeast farm press published an article that says losses due to agriculture from wind storm surge and flooding currently are 125 million dollars and the big number is in cotton. About 75% of South Carolina's cotton crop is a loss. That total $56 million. So, geez, don't forget about South Carolina. 
when we're thinking about the damage from Hurricane Florence. And uh, in addition to that, of course, you've got buildings, infrastructure, and businesses in agriculture, and that could be 38 to $50 billion. So all told, just a devastating storm. Had an announcement earlier today from Greg Ibach, the Secretary of uh, USDA Marketing and Regulatory Programs Undersecretary, and he's been talking quite a bit about animal traceability. This has been a Oh, I suppose a goal from USDA's perspective. They want to make sure that we can trace livestock, and their idea is we want to do this in order to protect long-term health, marketability, and economic viability of the U.S. livestock industry. And so uh, uh, Mr. Ibach came out Ibach came out today and said they've got four overarching goals for increasing traceability. These are, one, to advance the electronic sharing of data among federal and state animal health officials, veterinarians, and industry, including basic animal disease traceability data with the Federal Animal Health Events Repository, or AHER. Two, using electronic ID tags for animals requiring individual identification in order to make the transmission of data more efficient. Three, USDA wants to enhance the ability to track animals from birth to slaughter through a system that allows tracking data points to be connected. And four, to elevate the discussion with states and industry to work toward a system where animal health certificates are electronically transmitted from private veterinarians to state animal health officials. Basically, they uh, they recognize that some sectors of the livestock industry have already gone a great deal into kind of putting these type of programs into effect, and uh, they want this to dovetail with that. Um, you know, they, they did say, or they didn't say, but it's hinted that really it's the cow-calf industry that hasn't gotten on board, and eh, I don't know. I've got mixed feelings on livestock traceability. I think there could definitely be some advantages there if we get, you know, God forbid, hoof-and-mouth disease or, you know, some kind of thing like that. But at the same time, I guess I'm still just enough of a wacko loner that I don't think I want that lifetime data being tracked, I suppose. Listeners, if you've got thoughts, chime in. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Ag News Daily. And, you know, if this is something you've thought about, let me know what it means to you. Let me know what you think about animal traceability, particularly the government having access to those numbers. I don't know. I'm probably just being paranoid. But we've got a comment here from the CEO of Cargill. This is coming from uh, David McLennan. He said that the long-term dispute between the United States and China um, could be a lot longer lasting than uh, growers have anticipated. He said, quote, maybe if it were fixed quickly, we might go back to the way it was. But long term, I'm concerned because it has a detrimental effect on the U.S. ag industry. He says, we're not going to stand down. This is a matter of pride for my country, and we're not going to be bullied. And that was him talking about President Xi Jinping. So he's saying that uh, China is going to stay and find alternative sources of supply of soybeans and soybean meal. But he says, again, price can drive a lot of different decisions. So that, there we go, from Cargill CEO Dave McMillan. Excuse me, Dave McLennan. My apologies there, Dave. I assume you tune into the podcast. And finally, before we get into the markets, we've got a comment here from Bill Ford, the uh, CEO of Ford Motor Company. He said that while the negotiations are ongoing for the U.S.-China trade deal and U.S., Canada, and other countries... Bill Ford said he wants the auto, he said the automaker wants a deal that will allow it to plan and invest with, quote, certainty, 
quote, we just want to work with the administration on trade issues, tariff issues, but our business runs a lot better when we have certainty and we don't have gyrations, he said. The uh, immediate pullout of TPP, which I think we kind of knew going into the election, and then NAFTA really have kind of uh, thrown forward for a loop. So they're trying to make do. The steel and aluminum tariffs will cost Ford Company a billion dollars in profits in 2018 and 19 as they eat a lot of that tariff increase rather than pass it on to the consumers, according to according to Ford. So we'll see. I haven't priced out new trucks. They are still well out of range for me. But before we get into the markets, let's jump down to Kansas City and hear what Bill Northey said while he was uh, getting ready to take questions from listeners there at the Kansas City Ag Outlook Forum. You heard the president, you heard the secretary as well say we're going to have our farmers' backs. Uh, it's not an easy, simple, straightforward process to figure out what that means and how we support folks in the short term to be able to cover some of those losses. Uh, but what was generated out of that was a market facilitation program. And so uh, Rob may address a little bit of how we ended up with the numbers that we did to be able to understand the impact, but essentially saying what are those products um, that, were, that had a duty on them and how much was that impact and loss of trade. We know that doesn't capture if you are in an area that are, I was in North Dakota, and you're in an area that is especially vulnerable to Asian trade, Pacific Northwest, and you see a basis widen. Uh, you're in another crop. You're in canola. Um, and there was not a duty on canola, but there sure was on soybeans. And so your canola prices are impacted, but that was not captured in a model simply looking at the products that were directly impacted uh, by the duty. Um, by the tariffs. Uh, and so to be able to package it this way, the, the same way we would defend a case if we took it to WTO, uh, made the most sense. And then to be able to deliver it in a way that worked in the middle of harvest for a lot of producers in offices that were already busy, um, it needed to be as straightforward and simple as we could. Uh, and so rather than looking at, we had a lot of folks that said we need to look at 2017 crop. We need to look at what people have sold. We need to understand if somebody has already sold some of 2018 crop, they shouldn't get credit. And we said, you know, let's make this 20, 2018 crop. Let's make it straightforward. Whether folks have got it sold or don't have it sold, let's get this so that if folks can come in and one visit, deliver us the volume, we'll set a price, uh, and we intend for this to be easy for folks to participate in. All right. Well, we will pick up. We'll follow up with a lot of the questions that came from the crowd. I couldn't make them out here in the recording. So Delaney's got the notes. I'll pick those up from her, and we will probably play those tomorrow so you can get brought up to speed on what Undersecretary Northy is looking at and how things are progressing down in Kansas City. But... Let's jump right into the market, see how this week closed today. Well, excuse me, not the week. We've still got another day to go. But let's see how today closed in the futures markets. And friends, our markets are brought to us by our partners over at the Zaner Group. Give them a call. Use them to help build a marketing plan that will reduce your marketing risk for your operation in this volatile period. You can reach them at 312-277-0050 or find them on the web at zaner.com. 
Starting with the corn market, December corn up one and three quarters at 364 and three quarters. The March up one and a half to finish at 376 and a half. Soybeans in the green today. The November contract up five cents at 855 even. The January up five and a quarter, closed at 869 even. In Chicago, we a little bit of red today. The December contract down four and a half at 513 even. The March down five and a quarter, closed at 530 and three quarters. Looking over to the world of livestock, we've got weakness in the live cattle complex. The October down 65 cents at 113.2250. The December down 27 and a half, closed at 118.57 and a half. Mixed trade in feeder cattle with September up 25 cents at 157.30. The October down 45, finished at 157.85. And in lean hogs, weakness here in the front month contracts. The October down 90 cents at 61.30. The December down $1.75 to close at $55.47 and a half. Jumping over to the world of dairy in Class 3 milk, our friends over there in the dairy parlor currently see September milk down $0.03 cents at sixteen eleven, with the October unchanged on the day at fifteen ninety five. Without further ado, let's jump into Bruce Gorder's conversation with Darcy Malsby about telling Ag's story. We are talking with Darcy Malsby this afternoon, talking about telling the story of agriculture. Darcy is a, a farmer and author and an ag- activist for the agriculture industry. And Darcy, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Bruce. It's great to be with you. All right, let's let's talk about telling the story of agriculture. And I was thinking about that the other day, and uh, who to tell the story of telling the story, so to speak. And I couldn't think of anybody better than you because you do it so well and so often to so many different audiences. First of all, give us a quick background on yourself, if you would. Yeah, so I'm Iowa storyteller, and I live on a century farm up in Calhoun County, Iowa, in the west central part of the state. So my family has been in Calhoun County since 1889. I grew up on a farrow to finish hog farm. We still have uh, corn and soybeans, just like we did back then. We're, We're not in livestock right now, but my brother has taken over the operation and I help out when I can. And then I also run a marketing communications agency where I work mainly with ag clients across the country, helping them tell their story. And I've also gotten into writing books. I just got a contract for my fourth book about the history of Iowa agriculture. So onward and upward. Oh, that's fantastic. Why, why so passionate about agriculture, Darcy? I imagine it's because of your background, but, but why the passion? Well, you know, I, I was just reminded of this the other night. I was in Des Moines and I was at a meeting. At a, actually, it's more of an urban farming setting, so it was an interesting mix of people. So we had farmers there, we had politicians, we had city folks, so a great diverse mix. What concerned me was that there was a lady there that was uh, spreading all kinds of misinformation about modern pork production. And I sat there and listened for a while, and I just thought, my goodness, someone needs to counter her with the truth. And so I spoke up, and sometimes it's challenging in these situations, especially if you're the only one speaking up for agriculture. But what seems to break through to audiences, or at least that they will give you the grace of of listening to what you have to say, is not just rattling off facts, but telling stories. 
Now, you have several different audiences, I would imagine. You've got the farm audience, you've got the consumer audience, and, and you deal a lot with national and foreign media. Let, let's let's take this consumer audience, as long as you brought it up with this lady from the other day. What is the message that you bring to the consumer, the consumer audience, uh, when you speak to them, either as a group or one-on-one? Well, I always consider myself someone who's bilingual in terms that I can speak the farmer's lingo and I can speak the consumer's language as well. And the thing I really want my stories to get across to our urban friends is how much farmers care. We care about clean water. We're the ones drinking out of wells. I have a 290-foot well in my backyard surrounded by corn and soybean fields. And my family, my pets, my plants, we're on the front lines of consuming this water. So we care about the environment. We care about water quality. We care about soil health. And most of all, we care about providing safe food for the people that we are serving. And it's something that my family has done for generations. And we're the latest link in the chain to carry on that tradition. Is the consumer audience that you talk to, Darcy, are they receptive overall to what you're saying, or is there some skepticism, or is it kind of a combination? You know, sometimes I think we get too carried away worrying about activists and what they think, because there are folks out there that no matter what we say, and that's kind of what was going on with the lady the other night, that no matter what we say, They just don't want to hear it, but they are a minority. They're just loud. And I think we all need to remember, myself included, most consumers are in that movable middle where, frankly, they're not thinking about agriculture at all. They are worried about getting their child to soccer practice. They're worried about getting through the day at work. How do I put a meal on the table at night? How do I get all my work done before I collapse in bed at night? They really are not out there focused on bashing agriculture and most of them if you bring up the topic they're just curious they either admit i don't know much about this but i'd like to learn and we need to just put ourselves out there as a friendly resource that can point them in the right direction i think some of the labeling that goes on darcy uh is exactly what you are talking about i see uh, loaves of bread and uh, hamburger buns and hot dog buns all the time with with the big label on the front uh, no high fructose corn syrup and you see labels on food uh, non-gmo or you see labels on uh, uh, gas pumps no ethanol in in this in this product and those types of things i think go to the minority and the the loud minority uh, i actually talked to a bakery and and the high fructose corn syrup and the guy said yeah we know it's not a bad product but it's just what the consumer wants so uh, again that goes i think to the minority like you were saying that's right and we just need to keep our focus that most people out there really are open to the message they're very curious about farmers because most of them either don't know a farmer firsthand or they maybe are two or three, four generations removed from the farm, but they like to learn. And I was reminded of this back in 2015 when I, I work closely with the Iowa Soybean Association, and I pitched them this idea. I said, you know, in this world we spend a lot of time doing international exchanges with students and other folks, and I think we need some sort of an exchange program right here in Iowa where our non-farm and urban friends can get on a bus, come out to farm country, meet the farmers, tour the farms, see what we actually do here, make it very transparent, open, honest. They can ask any questions they want. Iowa Soybean loved the idea, and we got connected with 
a division of theirs called the Iowa Food and Family Project that works closely with consumers. And we did exactly that. We got a, a motor coach bus. We put out the word. We filled the bus with over 40 people, including Iowa football, Iowa Hawkeye football legend Chuck Long, who took the Hawks to the Rose Bowl back in the 80s. He came along. We just had a blast. And people were so kind and gracious and just loved coming out to the farms, meeting the farmers. And then we had a white tablecloth dinner out at our Century Farm. So it was just the perfect way to cap off the evening. That's great. And I think there are some other groups doing the same type of thing, and and that's exactly what we need. I'd like to ask you about uh, the national and the foreign media on on a larger scale. What type of reactions are are you getting from them, and what type of questions do you get uh, when they get in touch with you? Yeah, I've worked with everyone from USA Today to MSNBC Squawk Box, and we just hosted a foreign delegation from Taiwan and Vietnam, some grain buyers from those countries on our farm. And they really, they want to know the same things. They, A lot of these folks are very uneducated about what's going on in, in Midwestern agriculture. So we kind of start with the basics, and I don't try and go into the weeds and get too technical. I call them soundbite stories. So sometimes this is as simple as actually using a simile. You remember back in middle school, maybe you learned about metaphors and similes, but when I was on Squawk Box with Andrew Ross Sorkin, they were interviewing me in 2016 about what do you think about the presidential election, and, and so that was the topic of the day. And I, we were talking about tax policy, and that's something that it's kind of hard to tell a good story in a soundbite with tax policy. But the way I handled it is I spoke my piece in a sentence or two, and then I threw in a simile, which uh, if you don't remember what similes are, it's kind of like uh, what Forrest Gump was always talking about. Uh, life is like a box of chocolate. So what I said is the, the tax policy that uh, the host was talking about, I said, that makes no sense. It's like wearing stilettos in the cornfield. And I could just see the the cameraman and the TV producers (laughs) light up when I said that. And wouldn't you know, of all that uh, half-hour, 45-minute interview that they did with me and some other farmers, that was one of the little multi-second clips that actually made it to the broadcast. Oh, fantastic. Well, you do such a great job of, of spreading the word about agriculture, but you can't do it by yourself. And farmers and ranchers need to be able to give uh, give their part of the story also. What, how do you talk to those folks, and how do you get them to prepare to take their story to the public? That is huge, and we need more farmers. You're so right. We can't do this alone, and it's not just Darcy's story, and it's not just Bruce's story. We need to all be doing our part, and what concerns me is farmers get told a lot, you have to tell your story, share your story, and more and more of them are willing to do that, but I'm not always sure that we give them the tools to help them understand how do you tell a story. So it's kind of knowledge that we've all had since we were little bitty kids, but we've just kind of forgotten it along the way. And I think one of the easiest ways to remember it is a system that's called ABT. So next time you watch a Hollywood movie, if you remember ABT and but therefore, you will pick up that all the great Hollywood movies that hold your attention for two hours or more, they follow this structure. So what we do is we set the stage. So I'll give you a little example here. 
So I might tell a reporter or my neighbor or somebody who wants to learn about agriculture, well, my family has been caring for our land for more than 100 years, and we're proud to carry on this tradition, but agriculture is facing challenges like water quality. Therefore, we're using new technology so we can protect the environment and focus on continuous improvement. So that's ABT and but therefore, and it can be that simple to tell one of those little soundbite stories and get your points across all in a matter of minutes or seconds. That's Darcy Malsby telling the story of agriculture every single day, and that's what you hear here on this program each day. Delaney and Mike put together a great program filled with information and education. Much of it you can't hear anywhere else. For Ag News Daily, I'm Bruce Gorder. Fantastic. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Darcy, for taking the time to talk about that. It's uh, it's an interesting issue, and it, you know, it kind of comes back to that Berkeley doing the vegan Monday thing. How do we how do we reach out to them? And I always appreciate Darcy's insights. Listeners, if you've got thoughts on animal traceability, if you've got thoughts on telling Ag's story, you can always reach out to us on social media at Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Ag News Daily, or you can find us on the website at agnewsdaily.com. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to let you go. 